what I'll do, if you have your outlines and you look at it, I want to give the comparison of terms or definitions first, which is last in my, in my talk. So if you like writing down definitions, these are short and sweet and to the point. <clears throat> the first one, which is going to be next week's um, lecture, is, is uh, Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, Revelation. Revelation is God's communing to man, or communicating to man, what man would otherwise not know. That's what Revelation is. Next one is inspiration. Inspiration is the accurate recording of God's truth. Everything in the Bible is not true. How many of you know that? One person. Do you remember in Genesis, somebody said, hath God said, you will not die? Is that true? That was a lie. So, <clears throat> I want to mess with your heads there. Next one is illumination. Illumination is the process of the Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds, our hearts, in making God's truth known to us. When the light turns on. Next two, actually, I have them grouped together. They're not exactly the same, but they're, they're similar. And they are uh, inerrancy and infallibility. Inerrancy means that the scriptures do not have any errors. Infallibility means that the word of God is incapable of erring, or as R.C. Sproul would call, erring. <clears throat> the, the next one is hermeneutics. <clears throat> Hermeneutics means nothing more, nothing less than interpretation. It's the process of determining the biblical author's intended meaning and the method of arriving at the proper understanding of the inspired scriptures. Sixth, canonicity. Canonicity dwells with the, it deals with the process of how true books were entered into the, into the canon of scripture. <clears throat> and how they were determined, which ones belong into scripture. Number seven is textual criticism. It's the attempt, I say attempt because it's not a perfect science. It's the attempt to determine the original text of the biblical books. This is done by comparing various existing manuscripts. Then there's perspicuity of, or clarity of the scriptures which is the Old Testament and New Testament frequently affirm that Scripture is clear and understandable by regular, normal people like you and me. Then the authority. Authority is the Bible's expression, is God's expression of his will to us. It's the process of the supreme right to define. This is important. Scripture defines what we are to believe and how we are to conduct ourselves. Insufficiency. The written word is sufficient for moral and spiritual needs of individuals and of the church. It involves the denial that there is any other written or unwritten word of God that's equal to Scripture. And that's that's the end of it. So here we go. Any of you here take a philosophy class? Junior college, college, anybody take a philosophy class? Have you heard of the term rationalism? Who knows what rationalism is? Who can give me a definition for rationalism? Oh, we took it, but we forgot what it was, right? I know, me too. I had to look it up a whole lot. 
let me give you a few definitions in here to kind of describe it to you. To you. And, and on these definitions, I have three sources. On these definitions, I want you to look for a recurring theme that keeps coming up, one specific word. Uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary says, rationalism is a theory that reason in itself is a source of knowledge superior to and independent of sense, like the senses. The uh, Webster's New World Dictionary says, rationalism is the principle or practice of accepting reason as the only authority in determining one's opinions or course of action. And then the Encyclopedia Britannica. Rationalism, in Western philosophy anyway, is the view that regards reason to be the chief source and test of all knowledge. What was the main term that was used in each each, uh, definition? What? Reason. Absolutely, reason. Reason answers everything. When you're in college, especially a secular college, and Biola was a a, Bible institute of Los Angeles, but going to junior college where I took philosophy classes, reason was the thing. It was the the paramount of everything. And that is the main focus of secular humanistic thought. We'll see how that doesn't fit. Anybody in here grew up in a grow up in a Roman Catholic church in family? Okay. One. <clears throat> Do you remember, Brian, what the main focuses of doctrine were, what the main standards were? Okay. And did you go to catechism at all? No, I did not. Okay. Yeah, that might, yeah. My, my experience is very limited. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, they had three basic standards. One is sacred scripture. The second is sacred tradition. And the third one would be the magisterium which is how they interpret scripture. <clears throat> and, um, you, and not just those three. When, when they have these traditions, their Bible is different than the Protestant Bible. It has the Apocrypha in it, and, which is, was rejected um, early on, but both by Jews and early Christians. But in those understandings of scripture and tradition they have many doctrines which the church says is is biblical and is true but protestantism rejects can you think of any one subject that the roman catholic or any catholic church believes that we do not okay right right exactly mariology anybody else Communion, yes, the transubstantiation. Um, what was that? Prayer to oh yes, prayer, prayer, prayer to saints. Anybody else? Purgatory. Huh? Purgatory, yep. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. What I had, you got most of them. Um, they have veneration of Mary, indulgences, purgatory, prayer to saints. 
They got some other ones. The Immaculate Conception. Who knows what the Immaculate Conception is? Anybody? Exactly. Exactly. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's right. The Immaculate Conception isn't the virgin birth of Jesus. That's what I thought, but it isn't. Pope Pius in 1854, Pope Pius IX is the one who brought this doctrine in. Immaculate Conception doesn't refer to the virgin birth. Instead, it refers to the sinlessness of Mary. Was Mary sinless? No. Another one is the perpetual virginity of Mary. We show through scriptures that Jesus had half-brothers, Joseph, James, and and such, and and a couple of sisters. So we, we see that in scripture. They don't say that, but they say, oh, no, no, that can mean just brethren, and it was probably his cousins. Well... That's a far-fetched one. And then the assumption of Mary. Do you know what the assumption of Mary is? Huh? Yeah, exactly. When she died, she ascended to heaven. Whoa, no wonder we don't believe those those doctrines. Protestantism as a whole looks at Scripture and only scripture, sola scriptura, scripture alone is, is God's word. <clears throat> Part of the problem we have also touched on there is the Catholic Church teaches that the Bible is the product of the church. That's what they say. We are the ones who recognize and formalize what scripture was. And when we get to, um, oh, I don't remember which one it was, when we, uh, canonicity, uh, we'll find out that that's not true. It's pretty, pretty well uh, proven there. They also have authority over the Bible, as, as Rex was bringing out, with the Pope being the final authority and, and ultimate uh, judgment over Scripture, even. Next, mysticism. Who can tell me what they think mysticism is? Now, let me, before we get started, Mysticism has many flavors. You got Eastern mysticism, Western mysticism, mysticism. You got Islamic mysticism, Christian mysticism. There's a whole lot in there. But what does mysticism mean? What is it? You've heard the term mystics. Those are who practice mysticism, right? Any definitions? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me give you a couple of definitions here. This is uh, ooh, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. Mysticism is the practice of religious ecstasies, religious experiences during an alternated state of consciousness, together with whatever ideologies and ethics and rites and myths and legends or magic that they, they're used to. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy says that mysticism is also refers to, and this is the way we would, we would normally think of Eastern mysticism or New Age thought. It refers to the attainment of insight in ultimate or hidden truths. 
and human transformation supported by various practices and experiences. When you think about people going into these trances, I was raised in the 50s and 60s. So the big thing for going in trances was LSD. But that's not what this is talking about. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't have some experiences. I mean, some, of these, some folks in this church can tell you some of the experiences that they had that were very mystical. <clears throat> but what was the origin of it? The term mysticism is actually based on a, in ancient Greek. And it, it comes from a term, uh, uh, muo. It's M-U-O. And that means, simply means closed or concealed. Very much like the Gnostics um, that were operating in the New Testament times. You know, they were the enlightened ones. They were the ones who could reach these spiritual levels. And, and we see that in a lot of cults today. Next, we have neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy actually started right after World War I. And there were two Swiss um, theologians, Karl Barth and Emil Brunner, who, who, who formulated these ideas. And what it was, it was kind of a black backlash of uh, the failed Protestant uh, liberalism that was going on. And <laughs> they actually said it, it was termed neo-Orthodox, neo meaning new, new Orthodox. And what they said is we just want to revive the old Orthodoxy, the old teachings. And so they kind of looked at the Reformed faith and said, oh, this is the new Reformed faith. Well, it was neither new nor Reformed. It definitely had some difficulty. If you ever read Karl Barth's stuff, it, it's, it's difficult. It differs from the old orthodoxy uh, in its view of the word of God and sin. New orthodoxy defines the word of God as Jesus. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. They use that as their focus, their, their basis for saying that Jesus is the word. Now, he was the word. We know that. That's, that's what it's talking about. But that's not what they're talking about. It says that the Bible is simply man's interpretation. We heard this last week. And that it, man's interpretation of the, of the word's actions, that is man's interpretations of the actions of Christ, the Bible is not the inspired word of God, and being a human document, various parts may not even be literally true. God spoke through redemptive history, and now he speaks through the encounter with Christ. New Orthodoxy teaches that the Bible is a medium of revelation, while Orthodoxy teaches that scripture is revelation from God. The uh, <laughs> neo-Orthodox theologians say re revelation depends on experience. We saw that last week as well. The experience of a personal interpretation of an in each individual. The Bible only becomes God's word when God uses his, those words to, to point somebody to Christ. The details of the Bible are not as important as having a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Now, we definitely know you're not born again until you encounter Christ, until you recognize that you're a sinner, that you're lost, and that Christ is the only way of salvation. 
and you repent of your sins, you turn to Christ. That's not what they're talking about. Truth for them becomes a mystical experience and is not definitively stated in the Bible. It isn't the Bible. Truth is not the Bible. It's as you encounter Christ through the Bible. Now, let me, I forgot to preface all this stuff by this. We're not attacking individual people when we talk about cults and isms. What we're attacking is the false doctrine that they try to teach. That's a whole different thing. So, we come to cults. What is a cult? When you think of a cult, what do you think of? What is a definition of a cult? What would you say a cult is? Okay. Okay. Yep, okay. All right. Or they are the only ones that have truth. Yeah. Anybody else? Do you think of certain faults of religion? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Christian apologist and cult expert um, John W. War, uh, Moorhead, he gives a kind of working definition of, of a cult. He kind of takes some of his definition from Walter Martin's book, The New, the New Cults, but he says this. Theologically, a cult is a religious group which claims harmony with Christianity. That's the first part. Um, claims harmony with Christianity, but which either denies or misinterprets essential biblical doctrines. And then a second part, a cult is, is psychologically or behaviorally um, is, a, is a secular or religious group. It does not have to be religious. Not all cults are religious. But they're, they're a group which tends to use extreme and unethical techniques of manipulation to recruit to assimilate, to control, and to obtain members. If I tell you David Koresh, what do you think? Waco. What happened at Waco? A mess. The feds tried to move into this cult compound, and a lot of people died in fire. Men, women, and children. It was awful. Then he continues... It should be noted with this expanded definition that cults encompass not only traditionally accepted new religious movements, but also fringe churches, as well as psychotherapy, self-fulfillment groups, new age groups, and even secular um, political groups. What do you think of that? I think of people like the KKK and um, the skinheads. They have this element of religiosity to it, but it is so anti-Christ and anti-truth that it's, it's unbelievable. Well, some of these cults also try to add to or take away from what Scripture says. The first one is Latter-day Saints or Mormons. Anybody know anything about the Mormons? You know anything about their, their books? What would be their first? Charlie, what's the first book that Mormons use? Yes. Yes. The Bible. Yep. 
There are actually four. The Bible, Book, Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrines and the Covenants. <clears throat> While Mormons profess to believe in Scripture and accept its teachings, they add to it. The, the prophecies of Joseph Smith, which then reinterpret what Scripture says, <clears throat> And they have these continue. How many of you know that Mormons speak in tongues? They do. Not all of them, but they do. They profess speaking in tongues. So they have some kind of different ideas about things. Each of the Mormon leaders from Joseph Smith Jr. up to today is the, he presides as the president of the high priesthood and of the church and serves as a prophet, seer, revelator, and translator. I was witnessing, well, there's a guy at, at work when I lived in Flagstaff. Strong, he and his wife were strong Mormons. So I dealt quite a bit with them. <clears throat> and I said, you know, Joseph Smith did a translation, or they called it a translation of the, of, of the Bible, his own, his own translation. I said, go and ask your elders what manuscripts did he use to translate into his, you know, Mormon Bible? The guy never came back. You know why? I mean, you know why? They used no manuscripts. One, he couldn't translate because he couldn't read Greek or Hebrew, so he couldn't translate it. That's kind of a deceptive thing. We'll see that a little later on when we hit the Jehovah's Witnesses, too. As a matter of fact, we'll see it now. Who knows what the main book of Jehovah's Witnesses is, is for their uh, doctrine? Anybody? I'll let you know if you don't. Well, yes and no. Doctrinal book. It's called Let God Be True. It's the most circulated and most popular of all their, of all their doctrinal books. In it, they say this, we shall let God be found true by turning our readers to his imperishable written word. That sounds orthodox, doesn't it? I mean, that's what we would say. Anthony Hokema, who was a former professor at, uh, of systematic theology at Calvin Theological Seminary, he was there for 21 years, and he wrote a book. It was called The Four Major Cults. This is what he says about that comment. We gratefully recognize that Jehovah's Witnesses thus clearly state their dependence on Scripture as their final source of authority. But as we examine their theology, however, it will become quite evident that this is by no means a fair and honest statement of the case. Instead of listening to Scripture and subjecting themselves wholly to its teachings, as they claim to do, they actually impose their own theological system upon Scripture and force it to comply with their beliefs. If you've ever talked to a Jehovah's Witness, if you've ever witnessed or read any of their documents, it's amazing how they twist Scripture. can't remember the guy who, who wrote that book. It's called Twisting Scripture, and he dealt with a lot of this. <clears throat> um, they so much... Their Bible was, before the New World Translation, was the American Standard Bible of 1901. 
they used that um, until they did their translating of the New World Translation. They wouldn't use the King James or any of the, the newer ones because it just didn't prove their doctrines. We had an next-door neighbor when we lived in, in Escondido one time. <clears throat> it was a guy and a woman, a, a man and his wife, and they had two children. And I knew that some Jehovah's Witnesses, were, had, they had come in and had Bible study with them. And so I bought them a Bible. And I said, I want to tell you something. I guarantee you that none of the doctrines they're teaching you are found in Scripture. And I want you to prove it by Scripture. So when you read it, you look the words up. You work, look the scriptures up. When, if you've ever done any studying in their Greek New Testament, as I have, it's amazing how they mistranslate and turn things around. They add words. And anyway, so they so disliked even the new, the American Standard Version that they come up with their own uh, um, Translation, the New World Translation. A great book on that is uh, Robert Countess. He gives an excellent analysis of the New World Translation in his book, The Jehovah's Witnesses New Testament. <clears throat> what I like about it, because, you know, Pastor Brett and, and Brian and, and I think uh, Tim even have studied some Greek, uh, you can see how, how they've twisted and how they've uh, deformed Scripture. Next, we come to Islam. <clears throat> They have their own holy book. Anybody, what is it? I thought it would be all unanimous, the Koran. Yeah. For Muslims, the Bible is absolutely worthless. They says it's been mistranslated, totally corrupted, and it's not worthy of even reading. Further, Muslims deny that, or if you want Muslim, deny that Jesus died on the cross. They deny that Jesus died on the cross and that the resurrection ever occurred. Now, why do they say that? Is it because they have absolute proof, evidence that it never happened? No, they say that because it is in the Quran. No evidence whatsoever. James White wrote this book, and it's excellent. If you ever want to understand the Quran and why they think what they think, James White's book, What Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran. It isn't, um, it's not a debate. He just goes back and historically evaluates how it came about and how they, they made it up. It's really a convoluted situation. Um, he does an excellent job on that. Next, we have Christian science. Anybody know what Christian science is? It's neither Christian nor science. I guarantee you you've heard some of these names. The first ones I'm going to give, give to you are people, celebrities of names that you have heard that actually practice or have practiced Christian science. Alan Shepard, the first man in space. Doris Day, some of the older folks would know, younger guys probably never heard of her. Doris Day is an actress. Tom Cruise. Val Kilmer, Ginger Rogers for us older folks, uh, Joan Crawford for us older folks. And here are some who actually were raised in Christian science. 
um, and but didn't, um, as an adult, didn't confess it. Ernest Hemingway. Jim Henson. Who's Jim Henson? Anybody know? Muppets. Yeah, I used to love the Muppets. Robert Duvall. Henry Fonda. Marilyn Monroe. Ellen DeGeneres. I mean, DeGeneres. Robin Williams. I said that on purpose. Liz Taylor. Audrey Hepburn. It's amazing. I was shocked. I mean, I looked this up this morning and kind of pinned pin those names in. I go, whoa, who would have thought? Mary Baker Eddy is the one who founded Christian Science. And she wrote a book. It's called Science and Health with Keys to the Scripture. Matt Slick, who is the founder and main writer for the, the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, he is a graduate from Westminster, California. He, he tells this in his article. This book, The Science and Health with Keys to Scripture, is primarily interpreted source of the Bible and source guide of the Christian science. It interprets the Bible in a radically different way. Now, these things that I'm going to list to you actually have, I have, it would be chapter and verse if we were in the Bible, but these are the references to it in the scriptures and you know, health and all that. It rejects the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and states that it had no efficacious effect. It denies that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. It says that sin is a false interpretation of divine mind. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. And is non-existence. Who thinks that sin is not existent? <laughs> I can guarantee you sin is very real from personal experience. <clears throat> it says that the Holy Spirit is divine science, which is best represented by the Christian science. And the list can go on and on and on. Then Matt continues. To the Christian scientist, God is Father, mother. But father, mother isn't what you and I think of father and mother. For them, God is principle, known as divine mind. It has no personhood. It has no personality. And since God is love, that's kind of weird to me. It has none of this, but God is love. It's no personality, no personhood. God is love. It means that sin and sickness are only errors of interpreting the divine mind and have no true reality. John Moorhead is a, another cult ex expert, and he wrote, What is a Cult? He lists a few of those, and I'm just going to give them to you randomly. Eastern mysticism, or mystical Eastern religions, such as Hinduism, Buddhism, pantheistic Eastern religions, abhorrent Christian groups, that claim that they believe in the Bible, but really kind of twist things like Victor Werwill in the Way International in the Boston Church and the shepherding movement. Psycho-spiritual or self-improvement groups offering seminars. Well, we saw something the other night on lies, a lie to me. And this guy was just whew, raking the dough in from these seminars. And he was teaching this same kind of stuff. I go, wow. Anyway, they, they, they um, 
exposed him as a charlatan. He ended up having three wives. I mean, it was bizarre. Then there's this eclectic or synchristic that is a combination of all kinds of religions. I'm going to get to that because an experience that I had just this week out here in front of the church. There's the psychic, the occult, the astral projection, that type of things. Secret wisdom, lost truths, UFOs, um, all those things. And then established cults that we've talked about. And then extreme political and social movement. And that would include people like the Aryan Nation, White Aryan Resistance, and on. So I'm out here weed whacking in the front uh, against the street out there. And my, I guess you'd call it providential. My weed whacker stopped. Well, I needed to change the cord, but it just stopped. And this guy was walking by. I mean, he's probably in his mid 60s, late 60s, maybe early 70s. I don't know. He just recently retired. And he, he looked over at me. He said, maybe that's God's way of telling you to take a break. So we had this conversation. He said, so does your church have a choir? I said, no, we don't. Oh, he says, that's too bad. He said, our church has a a really big choir. Our congregation is about 300 members, and we have a congregation that's like 80 to 150. Wow, who's out in the audience, right? (laughs) Anyway, so he talked about, he said, oh, yeah, we're very ecumenical. He said, we, our choirs swap churches with Mormons and Catholics. And he said, and by the way, is your church one of those interna- uh, interfaith, belong to one of the interfaith um, groups? And I said, I doubt it, but I don't know for sure, but I doubt it. <clears throat> anyway, he actually is a member of just around the corner of the Universal, uh, if Unitarian Universalist Church. So I said, what do those people believe? <laughs> Here it is. They kind of have a a double meaning to it, Unitarian and Universalism. Unitarianism is a belief that there is no Trinity and that there is, and that therefore Jesus is not God. And Universalism is that the belief that all human beings are saved and there is no eternal punishment. Most Unitarian Universalists also deny that there is an afterlife. Now, what, what is salvation? They explain it. If there's no afterlife, what are you saved from? Um, the two doctrines were merged in the uh, late 19th century in America and gained traction among the intellectuals, trying to reconcile the idea of hell and a loving God. <clears throat> Instead of accepting that we may simply not have all the answers about what is happening with mankind. They come up with stuff. They just decide to deny uh, scripture and uh, come up with other issues. Those who follow Unitarian Universalism are especially committed to the idea that every person has a right to believe whatever they wish. Now, doesn't that sound American? Is it true? Does everybody in the world have the right to believe what they want to? Americans, we say, oh, yeah, boy, we have freedom of religion and all that kind of nonsense. How would God view that attitude? Would God say, yeah, go ahead and believe anything you want and you can end up in heaven anyway? That's not what scripture says, is it? No. 
We don't have the right to believe anything. God sets the standard. He gave us his standard in, in the word. And that's what he wants us to do. They also believe there is no absolute truth, right way to God or right way to live one's spiritual life. While they're oddly dogmatic about tolerance view, considering that they are generally non-dogmatic in anything, they especially are intolerant of, guess who? Biblical Christianity. Guess why? Do we believe in absolutes? Absolutely. How do you like that one? To the Unitarian Universalists, Jesus was nothing more than a good moral teacher. And the Bible is a book of myths and parables that has little absolute meaning. For the Unitarian Universalist, man is not sinful or fallen. And salvation is about improving one's life on earth. Lord, I hope not. Because there are so many of us can't improve. <laughs> and been struggling with improvement for a long time. Okay, we get to orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is an interesting word. I think Pastor Brett has actually mentioned it in our Sunday school class or even a sermon or two. Orthodoxy teaches that the Bible alone is authoritative. It comes from two Greek words that are put together. Ortho, meaning right and correct, and doxa, meaning worship or glory. In a secular sense, Doxology can mean a traditional or conforming to any accepted standard. In a spiritual context, the word orthodox means the correct faith or the correct worship and glory of the one true God. That which is, a, is orthodox agrees with biblical teaching and interpretation of the Christian church. False religions are not Orthodox. This includes a couple of things. The Bible is infallible in our word. Actually, four things. The Bible is the only rule in practice. This rules out experience and opinion as foundational. Now, we have subordinate standards, do we not? The OPC um, website, OPC's subordinate standards. The primary standard of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church is God's holy word. The Westminster Standards, comprised of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism, are secondary standards containing systems of doctrine set forth in the scriptures. When you look at it, if you get one of the older ones, they have listed every verse that they're quoting in there. That's how we know that it's scriptural. They also have, we also have the, the Book of Order, um, as our tertiary standard, comprised of the form of government, the book of discipline, the directory for public worship. All those are in, that, in the, our standards of, of the OPC. So we have standards. But every bit of those standards are from Scripture, are reflected in Scripture. Then there's human reason. We talked about that in um, rationalism. Rationalism, is that the right word? Yeah. Okay. And we talked about that. Human reason. Have you ever reasoned anything out that was wrong when you ended up with it? All right? We cannot depend on human reason. God has given us reason to look at things. Why would I want to believe what God has to say? Why would I study? That's reasonable to study God's word to find out what God says, what he expects of me, and how I should live. 
That's reason. But reason as a all-knowing concept, it just isn't true. Human reason must acknowledge that the Bible is supreme. And there is no divine, God-given revelation beyond Scripture. Now, I'll tell you what. In this here, the only rule of faith and practice, Scripture being no other revelation given, try to tell a Pentecostal that God didn't speak to them when they said, God told me. Try that one on. It ain't going to come over too swift. You check those things with Scripture and see how they turn out. Now we come to F on your um, outline. It's the uniqueness of the Bible. I love this part. The Old Testament was written between 1400 and 400 B.C. The New Testament books were written from approximately 40 A.D. to 80 or 95 A.D., depending on how you want to date it or how people date it. The Bible was written by many authors and with many occupations. There were 40 different authors of the books of the Bible. And these writers came from a variety of backgrounds. Listen to this. It includes shepherds like Hosea and Amos, fishermen, Peter and John, a tax collector, Matthew, doctor, Luke, a military leader, Joshua. At least four of the writers lived in a royal household. Two kings, David and Solomon. Daniel was a prime minister of Babylon. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and only a few of them, that would be Paul, Luke, and Moses, actually had a formal higher education. Scripture was also written in several different literary forms. It consists of of a collection of letters, Paul's letters, sermons, law, poetic descriptions, Narratives and historical events, prayers, praise, practical sayings, and warnings by prophets. The 66 books contain a wide array of writing styles as well. That's interesting, too. Yeah, that express entire human, the entirety of, of human emotion. This is just a few. Love, compassion, joy, happiness, delight, anger, sorrow. Pain, fear, hatred. How many of you know that scripture was written on three different continents? They were Africa, Asia, and Europe. Ezekiel composed his writings while in Babylon, which is Asia. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible in the Sinai Desert, northern Africa. And the Apostle Paul wrote, at least his Philippians, for one, uh, from Rome. Now think about the different circumstances under which these guys wrote. Moses, for example, wrote while he was leading the children of Israel in the wilderness, in the desert. Jeremiah penned his book while he was in the dungeon in, in Israel. Ezekiel composed his book while he was captive in in Babylon. The Apostle Paul wrote several of his works uh, while in the Roman prison. Those are what we call the prison epistles. 
John the Evangelist, who also wrote the, the Gospel of John, um, wrote the book of Revelation while he was banished to an island of Patmos. It was a prison colony. Obviously, there's not all these guys, you know, um, wrote in a particular place, and all of them, you know, were combined together. <clears throat> they were different places, different circumstances. Though many of the religions of the world have certain places where their holy books was revealed, this isn't the case for the Bible. The God of the Bible was able to reveal himself in many different places and over an extended period of time. The writer of the Hebrews wrote this. We, I quoted this last week too. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds. Scripture was written in three different languages as well. Hebrew, the Old Testament, with some pretty good chunks of, of Aramaic. In, like in Ezra, there are a couple of three different places. Daniel, and there's one verse stuck in Jeremiah. Uh, chapter 10, verse 11 is in Aramaic. The New Testament was originally penned in Greek. But I'll give you some examples here. Jesus also used Aramaic many times. The little girl that was, who was dead in Mark 5, 41, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. Ephrata, meaning be open to the man who was deaf. Abba, father, while he was in the uh, uh, Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, <laughs> Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, 36, raka means useless and even rendered cursed, empty-headed, and fool. I like to put it together. You, you useless, cursed, empty-headed fool. That's in Matthew 5, 22. That way I don't miss any of the meanings. Raboni means teacher in John 20, 16. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Hosanna. Save or deliver, O Lord, Matthew 21, 9. Maranatha, one of my favorites. Lord, come, 1 Corinthians 16, 22. There are many different subjects that the scripture teaches on too. These include existence and nature of God, the creation of man, the creation of the universe, the meaning of human existence, the purpose of our existence, and the final destiny of mankind and planet Earth. Most of these authors didn't even know one another. There are a few in the Old Testament where they kind of lapped over, and a few in the New Testament where they kind of touched at the same time, like Paul and Peter were alive at the same time and knew one another, but most of them didn't. With all this, you'd expect there to be chaos. You'd expect just a random, garbled mess that would come out of all that. But it's not so. Listen to the cumulative effect of, of what I just talked about. The Bible was written over a period of 15 to 1600 years by 40 different human authors from various backgrounds who wrote in different languages upon different continents, in different circumstances, upon different subjects, and in different literary forms. These authors, for the most part, did not know each other, 
With all these contrasts, one would expect something chaotic and disjointed, but it's not so. It comes together as one unified um, presentation. The Bible is a unity unfolding the unfolding account of the, from the beginning to the end, what we call the history of redemption. The Old Testament is incomplete without the new. Try reading Hebrews and not knowing what Leviticus is about. My. The New Testament, <clears throat> the Old Testament is incomplete without the New Testament, and yet the New Testament does not make sense without the Old. Together, these two testaments give a harmonious account of what God is doing in, with mankind and in history. Nothing but covenant theology can bring this together like that. So one of the most remarkable things about Scripture is the unity of Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has given us his word so we can understand what he wants of us, so we can understand what salvation is, so we can understand who Christ is and who we are in him. The Holy Spirit is the divine author of Scripture. Peter wrote in um, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God's word is truth. And I talked too long. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love and your mercy and your care. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we have freedom here to study and read and worship the one true God. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us. We pray that you would continue to do that and, and help us, Lord, um, as, we, as we go on in our journey with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.